Things have changed in the 20 years we've been a church. I would never have imagined 20 years ago. Find out more information by the QR code in front of you would be a statement that would ever be said. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, but it, I can't imagine the changes over the years. And one of the changes, obviously, is our smartphones uh, versus 20 years ago. And, and I saw this meme. Uh, somebody sent me this meme. A meme is, you know, where they take a phrase and put it to a picture, but it's not what the picture's about kind of thing. And this is from The Matrix. And it says, when your phone dies and you take a good look around, you know, so you come out of your sort of come out of your phone and realize everybody, everybody else is in their phone. And the point obviously is that uh, this is probably not great. It's probably not a great human existence to have our head constantly in our smartphone on social media. We're probably missing something and it's probably affecting us more than we think and probably affecting our culture more than we realize. The Matrix was a, fi- Matrix was a film in the 1990s. And I, I loved it. It was one of those films that was just so awesome. But the idea was that human beings had a perception of the world that wasn't the real world at all. They were being completely psychologically manipulated to live a life narrative that was completely fake, while their bodies were being used for the power of machines. And they were completely being used for someone else's power. And I think in that sense, the matrix is a kind of parable of our day. And particularly, I think the matrix is a kind of parable of Christianity in our day. Because I think there's a kind of matrix kind of Christianity uh, that has, in, in some sense, been living under a different narrative that has replaced the Christ of Christianity. In some sense, I think that Christians have gotten caught up in political issues and causes instead of Christ, more focused on those political issues and causes more than Christ. And it wouldn't be the first time in history that Christians have gotten sucked into the lure of cultural and political power. It seems like it's the one temptation that happens over and over and over again, and nobody ever knows it's happening and when it's happening until you know, later looking back and we look back at it historically, but can we see it when it's happening in real time in the presence? It's tricky because uh, political issues are not unimportant. They're very important. And it's good for Christians as people to be involved in politics, to be participating in political issues is a a good thing for Christians to do. It's just that we don't want to get it confused with Christianity. We don't want to get it confused with Christ because if there's one thing the Bible's very clear about over and over and over, and that is this, that no earthly political power or agenda is going to bring about the power of Christ and his kingdom to redeem and to restore. That comes through Christ. And so we, what we want to do in this sermon series is, is this. I don't know if you've seen the movie. If you haven't, you can kind of get the point. We, we want to, we're, we're going to try to do this. Like, what in the world have I been doing? We're trying to wake up to the, what we have as our sermon series titled, Jesus is More. Jesus is Greater. Jesus is Better. We want to wake up from sort of this cultural narrative that has, in a sense, lured us into issues and causes that are important, but they're not the gospel. They're not Christianity. 
There are certainly implications that are important, but the focus, if the focus is those things instead of Christ, we're like these people that are being used to empower another agenda. So we're going to do this. We're going to look at this. When you think about a sermon series, there's 12 or 13 Sundays in a semester between a couple weeks ago and Advent, which starts the weekend of Thanksgiving. We're going to do... Look, we're going to go through the Gospel of John, and also there's a one sermon in Revelation where Jesus has these I am statements. They're statements that if we really believe what Jesus is saying, it would bring this life-giving power to our lives. And, and, I, and, and the one I want to look at today has, has always been one of my favorites. If we really understood what Jesus is saying, and if we believed what Jesus is saying in the passage we're going to look at today, it would fill our lives, it would lift our head, kind of like that picture, it would lift our head out of the slime, and we would start to see our lives under this big universe of transcendence and glory and beauty in a cause of the God that created us for a specific reason and a purpose that's eternal, and it would bring not just this transcendence to our lives, at the same time time it would bring this personal intimacy in our lives of a closeness with a God who is closer to us than anything else we can see and 100% present with us. And when we experience that, that's when all of a sudden we look at everything else in our lives through different lenses. We're going to pick up the story today in the middle of an argument. Jesus is having an argument with, I think, some of the most intelligent people he's had any argument with in all the Bible. These guys, these people, they get it. And they understood. They've been listening. And they understood the implications of what Jesus has been saying about himself. And they think he's dangerous. They think he's delusional. Because they get what he's saying. And so we pick up in John chapter 8, verse 52. It says this. These people are talking to Jesus. They're in this argument. We're picking up in the middle. And they say, Abraham died, and so did the prophets, the prophets who wrote the Old Testament that we read in the Old Testament. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Now they got it. They've been listening to Jesus. He's been saying exactly that, that if, if we obey his word, we will never taste death. That Jesus is talking, obviously, in very big transcendent language that has cryptic forms of a truth that we can't possibly understand right now. He's just giving us the basic principle. Look, just follow me, trust me, and you will never taste death. You will have eternal life. What Keith talked about last week, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And you have no idea what that means. Just trust me. Trust me that I am the light of the world and follow me. They've been listening and they get it. And so they say this, they go on and say, are you greater than our father Abraham. Now, when they say our father Abraham, it's not like that's their daddy. Abraham lived 2,000 years prior to this conversation. So Abraham was as far removed from these people talking to Jesus as Jesus and these people are removed historically from us, 2,000 years. But Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, and that's why they call him their father, and he's also the father of their faith. Now, it just so happens that these people have been re They've been altering the faith of Abraham to fit their own agenda, and that's part of the reason why they're pushing back on Jesus. And so they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? 
Now, here's the thing. We might read that in the sense of, who do you think you are? And maybe that's the way they said it. But I think what they're trying to do is say, do you think you're greater than Abraham? They died, so do the prophets, and yet you're somehow speaking like you're not a mere man that's going to die like everybody else. Who in the world do you think you are that's different? It's a great question. And Jesus is going to answer their question, but he's going to answer their question by ratcheting up the tension. So in verse 56... Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, what Jesus is doing is turning it up to 11. Because to say 2,000 years ago, your father Abraham, great guy, I knew him. And he, was, he saw my day and was glad. Now, that, no human being, mere human being, could make a claim like that. And so they're hearing what Jesus is saying. They're getting it. And so they say this. They say, you're not yet 50 years old. And they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus says this. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now you might think Jesus is a bad speaker. He can't get his tenses, verb tenses right. But he's doing it on purpose, and he's doing it to really make the point that they completely hear. They get it. And they, so it says in verse 59, at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I would have loved to have seen what that looked like. They got it. They understood when Jesus not just was saying he existed before Abraham, but the way he chose to say it, before Abraham was born, I am, was the final straw. The balloon popped, and now they think he's too dangerous to live, and they need to kill him. Because their mind is racing back to something that had been written 1,400 years earlier in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush to send him back to Egypt to free the Israelites. And when Moses is talking to God, he comes to a point where he says, okay, who are you? What's your name? Who should I say sent me? And God gives what has become one of the more popular passages in all the Bible. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. When Moses asked God, what's your name? God says, I am. Tell them I am sent me to you. And then it goes on the next verse. It says, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. Now we're not going to have time to get into this. But whenever you read in your English Bible this with all capital L-O-R-D, we don't have time to explain why, but that's the English way of translating God's name Yahweh. Yahweh was the ancient Hebrew verb for he is. So when God says, tell them I am sent you, and now he's saying, here's what you say, he is, has sent me to you. This is, this is my name, he is, Yahweh. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. What God is saying here is that I am not, I don't just exist. I am existence itself. This is my name. I am. I am the source of all that exists. I am 
the giver of all life. I am existence itself. I am life itself. I inhabit eternity. There has never been a time in eternity past where it's not that I am. There will never be a time in eternity future where it's not that I am. I am always. I am. That's my name. He is is my name. You tell them I am sent you. Tell them he is sent, sent you. In fact, that's my name, Yahweh from forever. He is is this idea that's almost impossible to explain because it is the simplest and yet most profound revelation of God there ever has been. That God is the one who is the I am who is always in the present tense, which means that there's never a time when he is not 100% present with you. Now, without being any less present anywhere else, because he's the I am, he's infinite, nothing else gets used up by being 100% present with you and 100% focused on you. There's never a time where that is not true. He is the I am, and there's never a time, there's never a moment where he is not 100% the I am in your present tense because he is always in the present tense. So when they ask Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus says, I am the I am who not only saw Abraham 2,000 years ago, I created Abraham. I created everything that exists, including you. Now, when you hear somebody say that, these people are smart enough to know. They're smart enough to get what Jesus just said. And he's too dangerous to live. Somebody that delusional is dangerous if people start believing them. So they need to kill him before something worse happens. Imagine this. Imagine somebody invites you to a lecture on campus. They're going to be, they say it's going to be a really interesting speaker. I've heard great things about them. So you go to the lecture, and you know what? It's super interesting. But then about halfway through the lecture, it starts to kind of get weird because all of a sudden he starts saying that he goes, I am ultimate reality. I am existence itself. I have always existed. I created everything. I created you. In fact, right now, I'm the one that's holding your molecules and your atoms together. And because I am life itself, your relationship with me will determine your eternal life, your life forever. Now, when you leave that lecture and go off to Sparky's or something to get ice cream and you're talking to the friend that you went with, you're probably not saying, what a nice man. That was so, he's such a good speaker. Great illustrations, but you know what? Really practical insights for living. If you said anything like that, you didn't hear him. You didn't hear what he said. Because if you heard what he said, you would probably be saying one of two things. That, who invited that person? You talk about deranged. You talk about delusional. Can you imagine if people start thinking that he's just, he's almost dangerous? He could be dangerous. Why are we letting that guy like that speak? Or you would say, you know what? I need to reorder my entire life around that guy. He's reality itself. He's ultimate reality. He's existence itself. He, 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 he created me. He created the entire universe. 
And he said he holds my atoms together and my molecules together. And he says that he is life itself. And so my relationship with him is the most important pursuit I could ever have in my life. i got to change everything and make him the main focus of my life. What you would not say is, boy, that was just, that's really practical stuff for life. Unless you misunderstood. It would be one of these two things if you understood what he said. I don't think there's a passage that really explains this as well, in the English language at least, than C.S. Lewis's riff he makes in Mere Christianity. And you know, it's read a lot, but we can't not read it now talking about this. We have to look at it, even if it might be repetitive for some of you. I think it's really key to understanding what's happening in this passage. He writes this in Mere Christianity, like in the 1940s. He writes this. He goes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Here's what that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus is. It's right, it's this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Ever heard anybody make that? I'm ready to, to, I think he's got good moral teachings. I just don't think, I'm not ready to accept all he said about being God. Now C.S. Lewis goes on to say, this is the one thing we must not say. And here's why. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But he goes to say this, But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, C.S. Lewis is saying what these people got 2,000 years ago that were smart enough to understand the implications of what Jesus was saying. There's not this great moral teacher because he wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be delusional and even evil to say the things that he just said about himself but merely be a man, and that's it. So either he's a delusional, evil, perhaps one of the most evil people that ever lived, C.S. Lewis is saying, or he actually is God, and the only option is to fall at his feet and worship him. Now, the early followers of Jesus did exactly that. And the reason why is because Jesus didn't leave any other option open to them. So much so that the Apostle John writes this in the first page of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 3, he says about Jesus, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now the reason why John is saying that about a man that he was with for three years is because Jesus didn't leave him any other option. Because he listened to the claims of Jesus that Jesus made about himself. But to John and to the rest of the apostles, Jesus proved those claims 
by three years of incredible miracles. Somebody had been blind all their life, and Jesus heals them, and now they see. Somebody who was dead for four days, Jesus walks up to the tomb and calls their name, and they come walking out. Jesus is walking on top of the water of the Sea of Galilee. It's storming on the Sea of Galilee. They wake Jesus up. He stands up, and he commands the storm to stop, and it stops, and the waves stop. All of these things convinced the apostles that what Jesus was saying about himself being the I am, the source of all existence, the giver of all life, the one who inhabits eternity, and the one who is always 100% present, really is true about him. And the ultimate thing that convinced them was the fact that they saw Jesus for a period of 40 days after he died, they saw him rise from the dead in a resurrected body. Not a resuscitated body, but in a new body that was the beginning of a new creation that he's bringing. He's just the first of it. And so the apostles were so convinced that they spent the rest of their life witnessing of the miracles and the teaching and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're reading when we're reading the, the New Testament. So much so that they eventually were executed because they wouldn't stop proclaiming that Jesus, the Jesus who rose from the dead, the Jesus who did the miracles, the Jesus who made the claims that he is the very I am himself. They were convinced. <clears throat> the others who picked up stones to throw at Jesus because they thought he was too delusional and too dangerous to, to be allowed to live any longer. Well, the reason why they did that is because they really understood what he means when he says, before Abraham was born, I am. The question is, do you? Do you understand what Jesus means when he says, very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before you answer that question, because we're in church and answers sometimes can be automatic and we always know the right answer is Jesus. Before you answer, I want you to think about your life. Do you really get the implications that what it means that Jesus is the I am? The source of all that exists, the author of life, the one who inhabits eternity and who is always present with you. 100% focused on you. You can tell by looking at your life whether or not you really believe that. Or if you're somewhere stuck here because you haven't really caught what Jesus is saying and you haven't either rejected him or fallen at your knees to worship him. There was a poll that was done back in 2013 by Rasmussen. It was during the Easter weekend. And they asked people the question, do you believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And 64% said, of Americans said yes. Now think about that. None of us think that 64% of Americans really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It, just, it, you, it, it would be different. The lives would be different. The culture would be different. But... But it's a great illustration. It's a great example of how thinking you believe something is perhaps the greatest hindrance to actually believing it. Because all of those people, 64% of Americans, they do not believe actually that Jesus rose from the dead or their lives would be completely different. So now let me ask you the question. When Jesus says this in verse 58... Very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Do you think he's telling the truth? 
that he's the I am? That when Jesus prayed in John 17 to the Father, he prayed about existing eternally with him before the creation of the world in glory? That, that when, when Peter talks about Jesus in Acts chapter 3, he calls him the author of life. That, that the Bible says that he holds everything together. He inhabits eternity. All things exist because of him. And Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew were to his followers when he said, I am with you always. He's the I am. With you always. With all the transcendence of the God that created this universe and the one who inhabits eternity and who holds every molecule in together in his hands because he has a purpose for your life. He created you to exist in his universe because he has this eternal purpose for you and he's with you 100%. Now, how would that change your life? How would that change your prayer life to be able to pray to that God, to that person, the I am? You would think more about prayer than just asking for this or that or help with this and that, but you're more excited about this cause, you're more excited about this TV show, you're more excited about this social media, you're more excited about this person, you would have this sense that he is the most transcendent. He really is more. He really is the greater. He really is the better promise of all that God is for you in him. And it would change your devotion to him. You really would fall at your knees and worship, not just pray, but worship, not just ask, but praise and give thanks. Let's pray. And let me just ask you this, give you a moment. Is there something you want to say to Jesus right now? The I am. Do you believe him? That he is the I am? What does that mean for your life right now? What do you want to say to him? Just say it. Jesus, your glory transcends everything else. You really are the more, eternally, forever, infinitely more. And the one who promises to fill our lives with your life itself. You keep inviting us to follow you so that we could have the light of life. You keep inviting us to follow you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. You keep inviting us to follow you because you are the I am, and in you is life itself forever, eternally. We want to hear you and believe you and follow you and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. May God make his light shine in your heart so that you would know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance for you in Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.